0: Hey, it's Guy Raz here. If you love this podcast, you might also love the TED Radio Hour. It's a show about what it means to be a human. We grieve. We experience joy, sadness, love, and jealousy. We can be cruel and empathetic. We have the capacity to imagine the future and the past. And at a time when it seems we're so divided, the TED Radio Hour explores what makes us unique among all species. Find it on Apple Podcasts, the NPR One app, or however you get your podcasts.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
2: I'm Jesse Thorne. ASAP Ferg is a rapper. He's part of the collective ASAP Mob, along with ASAP Rocky, ASAP Bari, and a bunch of others. He's worked with Missy Elliott, Freddie Gibbs, even the band Haim. He's fans of all of them. He's a fan of the greats, too Mob Deep, Wu Tang. And one of his all time faves? Madonna, who he makes a pretty strong case for. Not
1: that she needs it. You know, when I when I think about Madonna, I think about like Grace Jones, Rihanna, like these strong women. Same person that dated Michael Jackson, dated Tupac, and dated Basquiat. Like, come on, that where's her head at? You know what I'm saying?
2: It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with ASAP Ferg about his love for Madonna, about how going to an arts high school changed his life, and how being part of a collective like the ASAP Mob can make calling yourself a solo artist kind of challenging.
1: Even though I've been out for a long time, a lot of the years was like playing Passenger Side with Rocky and you know with the Mob and you know you've seen Ferg with the Mob, but Ferg by himself is a whole nother person.
2: Then I'll talk with Jonathan Katz. He's the creator and star of the animated series Dr. Katz, Professional Therapist. He's also one of the funniest people I've ever talked with. He's got a joke ready for everything. Almost an exhausting volume of jokes. Like, for example, since, like, the mid-1990s, he's been dealing with multiple sclerosis. So does he have any jokes about MS? Of course he has jokes about MS.
3: Oh, absolutely. In fact, my, my manager at the time and my lawyer at the time said to me, in Ella, you're not allowed to be sick or old. So I moved back to Boston, where both things are encouraged.
2: And finally, it's the 30th anniversary of what I think is the princiest of all Prince albums an appreciation of Sign of the Times. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Really excited about my first guest this week. It's ASAP Ferg, the rapper. Ferg grew up in Harlem's Hamilton Heights neighborhood. He calls it the Hungry Ham. He's part of the ASAP Mob with ASAP Rocky, ASAP Bari, and others. In 2013, he released his first solo record, Trap Lord, and included the hit single "Shabba," which hit number seven on the Billboard Hot 100.
1: Shabba. Shabba ranks. Shabba ranks.
2: Since then, Ferg has crafted his own voice, separate from the mob. He's worked with a bunch of different artists, including the indie rock band Haim, Bone Thugs and Harmony, Missy Elliott. Ferg's songs touch on all kinds of genres, too. Trap, house, dubstep, soul. He's got a mixtape coming out in August. It's called Still Striving. And in advance of it, he's been dropping new singles, about one a week. Here's one of his latest. It's called Tango.
1: Just found out my daddy died for the wrong reasons wasn't the kidney that took him it was the bad treatment And go to court because our heart was still bleeding family grieving no money could right, fix right, the pain right, that we right. feeling little nice to leveled up you wouldn't believe it and my mama always reflect when i was younger T then that was gold grills glistening every time the teeth he
2: in hey Cedric welcome to Bullseye. thanks for being on the show Hey what's up man thanks for having me Can you
1: tell me a little bit about the neighborhood in Harlem that you grew up in 143rd in Amsterdam, between Amsterdam and Broadway, we call it The Hungry Ham. Um, it was a bit crazy at times. Uh, 144th was just wild. My mother would never let me walk through that block to go to the store uh, for nothing. Uh, gunshots all the time. Um, cars with no wheels on them. Uh, crackheads up and down the street. Um 143rd my block it, it was it was a lot like a small community of people that like we fought together, we played together, we uh ate together. You know, some robbed together, some sold drugs together. And uh you know, that that was Hungry Ham. Yeah, that's that is Hungry Ham.
2: It's crazy how it breaks down to the block. Yeah. Like, that you can tell me, oh, 143rd was like this, yeah. 144th was like this.
1: Hungry Ham is a, sp- a span of, from, say, f- 144th all the way to, like, one fo- like 140th. But it's all, like, broken up into sections. Like, you have 140th, they consider themselves, like, the 40th boys. You know, like, you got, oh one forty third. that's really, like, Hungry Ham, like, my block. Then 144th, they got their own thing going on, and then, like, on and on and on so forth so like but all together we are like you know we all kind of it's like a small village of people that's on a hill because we are far away from everybody else did you leave when you were a kid i mean did you no i didn't leave i stayed i stayed uh all the way up until i got my deal i mean did you leave oh did i leave the block to like go play or yeah. hang out other yeah yeah i was always um You know spontaneous and curious about like other places and other hoods like i wanted to go hang out on other people's blocks because they had more girls on their blocks and you know things is more fluent over there like we'll get we'll we'll get hip to everything late because we're on the hill and you know my dad and my uncle and my and my father's part of the family was from down the hill 7th avenue 8th avenue so i used to go down there with my dad He had a store called Ferg Apparel on 145th between 7th and 8th. I always seen more things and more traffic and and more excitement and events and cookouts happening down the hill. So I I always left to go, like, hang out with my dad and his friends and, you know, be around with my other family, my other side of the family. So you went
2: to the High School of Art and Design. Rest Uh, in
1: peace, Prodigy. He went to that school, too, Mob Deep.
2: Yeah, we just found out that he passed. Yeah. As we record this, um, right. w- was your idea that you were going to be a designer like your dad?
1: No, I wasn't trying to be like my dad. It was just something natural to me, something that I always was into. I actually seen a, a Selena movie, well, it was Selena's movie, the only movie. And um, what inspired me to, to start drawing clothes was when I seen her sketch out like a, a dress or something like that. Or I think it was she was opening like a um, a boutique. A clothing boutique and I was like yo I can do that but it was like a mere thought it wasn't like nothing crazy like I seen the vision uh, it was just like I could do that and then I was just like I started like trying the first thing I drew was a dress and I was like this is like uncomfortable because I'm used to drawing like Dragon Ball Z like (laughs) characters and things like that on my desk my notebooks and um I started like saying man I'm going to draw things that I could wear. So I started drawing, like, T-shirts, jackets, jeans, and, like, yeah. I just started, like, designing things at a young age. The first thing I drew was, like, a dog, though. It was, like, in my father's car. And he gave me, like, a bunch of pens and highlighters and, like, one marker because I was, like, sitting in the car bored. He was in a shop with his friends. And, um he came i was i was asleep for a long time and i woke up when i woke up he gave me the pen and in, in the in a book i started drawing and then i made all his friends sign it he was like yo D, this look real this is dope this is this looks good and then i just kept drawing after that like it's always been my thing
2: was part of the idea of going to the art and design high school not going to the neighborhood high school I I mention that only because I went to arts high school. Yeah, the reason I went to arts high school
1: was because I was not trying to be going to the to the high ghetto school high school <laughs> <laughs> by my house. Uh, it was a mess. My parents always try to present the best opportunities possible. So I was the kid like going to Fresh Air Fun every year. And Fresh Air Fun, those who don't know what it is, it's like away camp, but you go sleep at these like. Different people houses. Like, I, I went to go stay with the McCalls. That's like this white family that lives in Butler, Pennsylvania, and, you know, they just show you a different way of living. You're swimming in a creek. Like, uh, you, you... Uh, Wait,
2: l- literally swimming in a creek? Yeah, like, su-
1: for real, there was a creek there and you're swimming in yeah, it? Yeah, you swimming in a creek. You wake up, you see dares outside your house. Uh, you see um, squirrel. Bones and stuff from the cats that's hunting on the porch. We drinking milk every night. <laughs> you know what I'm saying for dinner. We're not allowed to drink soda pop. You know we eating deer burgers. We going to church. It's like a real different way of living. We going to drive throughs. You know what I'm saying. um And it's a lot of land. It's a lot of land.
2: You know, do you still know the McCalls of, what was it, Butler, Pennsylvania?
1: Yeah, I just visit them, like, on this tour. they actually, I, I hadn't see them for years, and I actually went over to their house.
2: What was it like to go back there?
1: Oh, uh, man, it brought back so much memories, because I, I went there for, like, four years in a row straight, like, for two weeks at a time. Oh, wow. Yeah, and and each time I go there, it's just like a new experience. And it was more free, like, I mean... I'm a city kid, like I never experienced going hunting, like groundhog hunting or, you know, going to a drive through where, you know, you had to dial in on your radio to like listen to the actual audio of the movie that you're watching on a projector with all of these cars and like a vibe that's on the grass. So all of that's just, you know, it was different for me. But that just goes to show you where my mom mom mind was, because she, I'm, I'm her only son, so to let Me go at the age nine, you know, to a complete, she didn't even meet these people. You know, she only spoke to them on the phone. She's just like, man, I want him to see things. I want him to travel and have an open mind towards things. So um, I forgot what question you had asked me, what led to this, but yeah. Uh,
2: When you went to art school uh, for college, right, you you went to a couple years of college. Oh, yeah.
1: You were saying about uh, what made me go to um, a different high school. Yeah, yeah. That you know that that was the reason why because my mother and my my father was really into like you know me seeing the world and just different things. So
2: was high school wild? I mean, like, I I remember what the cafeteria was like at the arts high school I went to.
1: What was, was your was, cafeteria like?
2: It was something else. Well, for one thing, the cafeteria was not even really a cafeteria because our high school was built in a. Like an old abandoned school for special needs elementary age kids. So, like, all the water fountains were like 18 inches off the ground, and it was very sad. Mm -hmm. But anyway, you know, I mean, it was like goth kids that were full on music video level production. Like, I'm talking about full body latex dresses. (laughs) My school was the same way, (laughs) right? Like, I'm all that stuff, right?
1: Yeah. Like wearing black hoodies. And it's, like, it's, it's like, 30 degrees outside. Yeah. Coming to school with black nails. Plenty of folks making their own clothes. Exactly. You had, like, the gay kid over there. You had, like, the golf kids over here. You had like, you know, the kids from Brooklyn that's over here that's trying to act gangster in the art school. Like, come on, we at art school. And then you got like the fresh Harlem kids that's over here that's with me. And then you have like <laughs> and you have like different shorties from Brooklyn, Queens, whatever, whatever. Everybody's talking to everybody. And uh, that's exactly how my lunch table was.
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm in the studio with the rapper ASAP Ferg. His new tape, Still Striving, comes out in August. Did you have bars in high school? Had
1: bars. You want to hear, hear old rap? Yeah, absolutely I want to hear an old rap. I said, uh they see Ferg rapping now. You want to do it too, rapping, but what a different style. You want to do it too. We roll like the Two Alive crew do now. I tell my dudes, don't stop. Pop that and let me see him do brown. Because he's scared, so he on this man. And this man's scared too, so he in his pants. But look, I got a girl, and she don't be playing. She cut like Diddy and making a band but yo I can't stand boys that's why I carry a little deuce deuce and it's louder than slam doors and the whip the s*** transform boom I mean they call it s*** Luther cause the van draws so no matter how you put it man you gon' lose and I'ma murk you while your girl in the other room and if she got the heater I'ma sneaker like running shoes then put the hammer to her head like a screw and if you his crew then too cause y'all walk around like that cool when you I said that you ain't rude, but I am. Now, what the f- you gonna do?
2: That's pretty good for a teenager. <laughs> now, I will say to an NPR audience, that verse you just ripped is gonna sound like ship to shore communication. Beep, 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 beep,
1: beep, 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 beep. That's cool. Oh, you didn't warn me. You didn't warn me. <laughs> didn't we're warn- all
2: right. We're all right. We're well, not that, live.
1: but, but, so did, did that. But were you hard like that? Yeah, I was. I mean, I come from a battling background, so it wasn't really about us really pulling out guns and, you know, really killing people. It was more like a horror film. Like we wanted to be like the menace, like the, the, the craziest, say the craziest things to embarrass you in front of an audience. Which was like our neighborhood, so I would go. I was a part of a crew called H Team, which turned into Harlem Envy, where we would go to different blocks and battle different people. So we had to be very, very disrespectful because our tongues were swords. You know what I'm saying? We go in there, we we gotta represent. So I, I couldn't lose. So I'm like, yo, I gotta say the most menacing things to embarrass this dude. So we we rapping real loud we turning our backs on people while they're rapping and like people was looking out the windows and it was just crazy Pussy Plain Jane, Yamagini Jane, rest in peace to my superior Hermes, bugging Vita Village in Liberia. TMZ taking pictures, causing my hysteria. Mama, see me off BT and start tearing up. I'ma start killing, slicking, how you get that tripe? I attended holler Picnic's when you risk your life. Uncle used to skim work, selling Nick's at night. I was only eight years old, watching Nick at night. Uncle cycle was in that bathroom, bugging. Night to his butt, hope daddy don't cut him.
2: I want to ask you uh, something about particularly being a rapper and being from New York. So I feel like for a long time from the early 90s for 10 15 years afterward to be a rapper from New York meant a particular thing. It meant that you had to be hard. Right. Basically, right? You had to you had to step there was there was sort of there were a broad variety of ways of being that, right. but that defined what New York was. It was snow on the ground and wearing Timberlands and a snorkel jacket and being hard and, right. you know, and I think you and ASAP Rocky and the rest of the ASAP crew, part of what was remarkable about your success at the beginning was introducing a new, basically, a new way to be from New York, right. You know, and I wonder if that was part of your goal.
1: Well, it was definitely how we are, you know, in general. Like, I was always different, you know, Rocky was different in his way. Bari was always different in his way. You know, a lot of the ASAP mob members is just you know, we was just the outcast kind of. But we was still cool. Like we was real popular. Like, you know, we was popular before we made music. So we just kind of took all of our difference, differences, you know, that people thought was different or just, you know, was like, oh, man, that's too different or, you know, scared. And we put them, we paired them together. We got real cool. Cause so we, like oh.
2: each of you each of you, were uh, the, the, like, wild creative guy in your crew. Right. And you exactly. all said, let's
1: Voltron this. Yeah, we Voltroned it. That's exactly what we did. And um, I always said, man, Kanye and his friends is cool. Imagine if the world seen my friends. I always said that. And um, we knew that we was doing, we was up to something because we came from the hood and there wasn't no way that it, it wasn't other kids that was in the world that wasn't like us, that was from the hood, that was into art, into fashion, wanted to hang out at cool fashion parties and the artistic scenes and, you know, wanted to get crazy haircuts and wear skinny jeans and Supreme Tims, you know, like, we was those guys like finding sample Margiela sneakers at thrift shops and you know going we was really about that life so um we knew that we was we just when we was when we formed like voltron like it just felt like we had a movement and you could see that movement in our first video um me and rocky shot uh a video called get high and i was just like yo we got all of this stuff going on in new york and nobody sees it we need to record the history and um i remember it was my birthday and we shot the video at my bro jay west house and uh we we invited everybody that was doing something in new york the socialites and people that had clothing lines and this that and the third and invited them in a video to showcase their stuff and um it was a success cuz everybody you know started posting it my biggest thing was like man if it make world star without, without us paying to get it on there then we <laughs> lit and they did they posted it in a couple blogs i remember Mishka post posting it and some uh people from supreme i think had posted it um yeah it was cool i mean if you can make world star without getting drunk behind a club <laughs> <laughs> With no weaves being torn, right? Then you know you've got it made. <laughs> exactly, right? We wasn't even smoking weed in the video, and the song is called "Get High." And the reason why I told Rocky, I told Rocky, he was like, "Man, how we shooting a video? we Ain't got no weed in the video." I was like, "Man," because I, I got, I want this joint to play on TV. So I was already thinking about it. Like, man, this is finna be blow up. Like, you know, at least give it some chance. What? surprised you about what it was like to be a success when you became a success? What didn't you expect? I didn't expect for it to be this hard to maintain your success, uh, maintain your vision, maintain your humble, your, 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 your humility. Um, just maintain you as a person. People lose themselves with success. Um, I think yams is a testament to that. You know, we could all look at yams and be like, you know, we learned the lesson. And um, it happens to the best of us. It's not only people passing, but it's it's people that just can't, they can't have a conversation with people they grew up with anymore because they just can't relate no more. It's just like, you know, you get pulled in into this new world, and it's just like everything that you stood for before doesn't matter anymore and that's what i don't want success to come to for me and that's why i always like remain humble i travel with my uncle everywhere um my cousin is my assistant you know I, it's like a family business really
2: more of my interview with asap ferg right after a quick break coming up we talk about the loss of his friend and collaborator asap yams he was one of the founding members of the ASAP Collective, one of its driving forces. And although he died a little over two years ago, Ferg says it still hasn't entirely sunk in.
1: I still think of yams like that. Like, he was here, like, vibrant, like, the birthmark, the swag, everything. And it's just not here no more.
2: It's a bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from the ATT original series, Mr. Mercedes, based on Stephen King's best selling novel. A demented serial killer taunts a retired police detective, and now the ex cop must bring the killer to justice before he can strike again. Mr. Mercedes premieres August 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. On audience, Watch on DirecTV channel 239 or stream on DirecTV now. Go to att.net MrMercedes for more information.
3: Hey y'all, Sam Sanders here. These days I feel like I can't make sense of the news until I've talked it out with my friends. So I made a new show where we do that every week. It's called It's Been a Minute. That's my way of saying let's catch up. Find it's been a minute now on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks
2: it's bull'seye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with ASAP Ferg. He's a rapper and fashion designer and one of the most prominent members of the ASAP mob, the New York hip hop crew. you mentioned ASAP yams who was sort of like a I don't know. I mean, how how would you describe what his role was, in in the crew? He was like a kind of manager, visionary, chronicler type of thing.
1: I think Yams, and I and I thought about this a million times. I think Yams, because I think about purpose of life. I think Yams' purpose of life was he was a God sent angel who brought all of these collectives together, which is us, ASAP Mob. And that was his purpose, to bring us together. And then I felt like when—I think God took him back when once he achieved the mission of putting the whole ASAP mob together. That's my belief. He was definitely a visionary. You, you could even say prophet, I think. Like, he was like an angel. Like, he came, and he was a vessel from God. Because, honestly, if, if it wasn't for yams, I don't know where I would be what i would be doing i know that i like i wouldn't be strung out or doing like nothing crazy like you know but i just know it'll be really really hard or tough he was definitely the god sent hand that kind of lifted me up and all of us
2: how did you meet him
1: i met yams on the train and he was familiar because i seen him around and i was like what up it was just like a head nod what up like, I wanted to talk to him or say more things to him, but I didn't know him, so... And then later on, it, it finds out that we have the same friends, and, like, I went to go hang out with, like, Bari and Ills and Yams wound up being there, and I got introduced to him, and I finally got a chance to say hi, <laughs> like, a real hi in the conversation, and we started building from there. Yeah.
2: What kind of guy was he?
1: Yams was very quiet he laughed a lot he was a thinker um strategist fun fun guy he wasn't like the playboy guy like with all the girls and like he'd be like the first dude to be like man f- them girls <laughs> let's get to the work let's let's do this let's do that
2: how did you find out that he passed
1: i got a call from um bari ASAP bari when i was on tour well, YG, um, I was in Philly, and it was nighttime. I think it was around, like, 10.30. And uh, actually, I got a text from Frank Ocean, and it said, man, sorry, send my condolences. And I'm like, I'm lost, really. And um, then Bari calls me like, yo, you know, Yam just died. And I'm like, what? So it all made sense, like, what Frank was talking about. And then... um. i kicked everybody off the bus and like i didn't even tell the guys because i didn't know how to tell them i didn't know how to tell my friends that i was on the bus for for about like a half an hour to 45 minutes like i ain't say nothing to them i just went to the back and thought to myself it was crazy at that moment but then i was like man i told him it would happen if you continue you know what i'm saying like He was, like, really abusing himself with, like, you know, the the drugs and everything like that, and really gone hard. You know, it just took him. Like, I remember having, like, one last conversation with him. The last conversation that I had with him, like, on the phone, was trying to get him to come move with me and, like, how he was going to work out and how he was going to get his brolic as my Uncle T nice and how he was going to do his push-ups. And and I remember telling him, I was like, man, we, we... we can't have no deaths in the camp, man. We got to we gotta straighten up. We got to drink this this alkaline water. Like, we got to go in. He's like, yeah, man, we going to do it. Like, I'm going to move in. But, like, you know, Yams want everybody to be happy, so it's just like I knew he wasn't really, you know, it's like pulling teeth to get him to do anything. You know what I'm saying? Like, you would think he's in the Bronx with his mom, but he'd be in London. You know what I'm saying? With Skepta in them or something like that. So he just... He was just all over the place.
2: How did it change the way that you thought about your life? Because he had been such a, you know, he was the person who, as you said, connected this group that changed everything for you.
1: Um, I would say it just basically, it just let me know to keep doing what I was doing, honestly. It wasn't like, it was like a a wake-up call or nothing like that, because I was I was never the type to go hard with drugs or nothing. Like, i never been addicted, you know what I'm saying? Never smoked cigarettes. Like, I'm not that that person. But it just let me know, like, you know, it could be all taken away from you. And it's still so surreal to me, like, when I think about it. It's, it's just like, damn, like, for real? Like, you know, like, Prodigy passing today, and I'm thinking, like, damn, like, he was here, and now he's not here. I still think of like I still I still think of Yams like that. Like he was here like vibrant like the birthmark, the swag, everything, and it's just not here no more.
2: You're listening to Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is ASAP Ferg. His latest album, Always Strive and Prosper, is out now. I wanna play a really happy song of yours. <laughs> um from your last from your last LP, Always Strive and Prosper. Um, strive Strive with, with Missy I Strive You can be
1: in and Benny Jerries it was scary my life vision was blurry. you got talent why you I'm thinking yeah plus i am getting the belly i remember mama screaming you ain't gonna be like your uncle terry uncle terry on the corner selling rocks he
2: don't i heard when i heard that record when it first came out i thought what ace had made a full on house record right you're from new york you're not from chicago <laughs> how did you end up making that record
1: it was something i felt man like I made a record, uh, when I first came out before I got signed, I made a, a song on uh Bob Sinclair's World, hold on. Like that beat was crazy to me. Uh I grew up like hearing crystal waters and, and things like that. You as a kid, you hear things and you know, it gets into your body and your vibrations and you never know how it's gonna come back out. So I guess that's my way of it coming back out. Did you record that song uh, with Missy Elliott? No, I didn't record it with her, but I had um, a chance to meet her, and that was the first song I ever played her. And um, Timbaland introduced me to her, and 30 seconds into the song, she stopped the music, and she was like, Timbaland, this is the music I want to make. And that lit my whole body up, warmed my heart, Melt me down, because I was like, man, this is my icon saying saying, she want to make music like this. And I was like, please, could you bless this? And she said, without a doubt. And, you know, I played the same record for Madonna. Um, Madonna called me in to work on her album. You know, the song that I did for her, it it didn't wind up making the the cut, but um, I got a chance to play some music, and that was one of the songs she said she loved. And um, I was just thinking, man, if I could have got Madonna and Missy on the same track, that would have been crazy. <laughs> yeah, I was working.
2: I cannot even imagine standing in a studio with Timbaland and Missy Elliott. How could it ever get any better than that?
1: Man, you tell me. <laughs> and then meeting um Jay-Z the next day, you know, and having a conversation with him and me telling him Timbaland last night told me that you put him onto my music. That was crazy. Timbaland, I asked Timbaland, yo, so how did you discover me? Like, how did you hear my music? I'm a very humble cat. I'm not assuming that everybody knows my music. I still introduce myself. Hi, I'm Ferg. You know what I'm saying? I'm not full of myself. But he's like, you know, we was sitting here one day, me and Jay-Z. And I'm like, Jay-Z? He's like, yeah, we was just going through your videos and listening to your music. And I was like, whoa. And then having to see Jay Z at Kanye's uh, fashion show the next day, Yeezy season one. Asked him, we spoke about the whole thing. He was like, yep. I was like, wow.
2: Now, I feel like it's it's one thing for an MC to come in here and tell me how much they love Missy Elliott, who's a great MC and such a brilliant, amazing performer. Right. Not that many folks come in here talking about Madonna.
1: I love Madonna because Madonna was a movie, you know what I'm saying? Madonna, for the culture, she just... You know, when I when I think about Madonna, I think about, like, Grace Jones, Rihanna, like, these strong woman staples in the game that just dares to be different and dares to be themselves, really, to be unique. And that's what she was to me. She was artistic. She is what you see in Lady Gaga and what you see in Riri, really you know, at, in, in her time, like dating Michael Jackson. Same person that dated Michael Jackson dated Tupac and dated Basquiat. Like, come on, that where's her head at? You know what I'm saying?
2: Do you think about the fact that when you're an entertainer, especially in hip-hop, the peak of your career has a limit to it, that there's going to be a part of your life... I mean, you will always make art... Yeah. But there's a point in your life where you'll be Big Daddy Kane in 2017. I'm I'm sure Kane can still write a verse. Um,
1: Shout-outs to Kane.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the greatest of all time.
1: Man, me, for me, I don't think so because, like, you know, I feel like I'm just now starting. I feel like a new artist. Even though I've been out for a long time, you know, A lot of the years was like, you know, playing passenger Side with Rocky and, you know, with the mob. And, you know, you've seen Ferg with the mob, but Ferg by himself is a whole nother person. You know what I'm saying? You get to dive more into that character of who Ferg is. So we got to get through that first. And then secondly, the entrepreneurial side, you know, the clothing lines, the, you know, um, the lifestyle, you know. Other things, I'm into culinary arts, not me cooking, but, like, just into, you know, the whole art of it, into art, painting, you know, um, curating different events. So it's just, it's a whole another world, and I could dive into different parts of my brand as I get older, as I see Dr. Dre doing now. You know, he's going to live forever. You, you see uh, Jay-Z doing it. You see Diddy doing it. And these is like these is who I these are the people I look up to when it comes to colossal empires and, you know, uh their legacy living beyond them.
2: Well ASAP Ferg, thank you so much for taking all this time to talk to me. It was really great to get to meet you.
1: Uh likewise, man.
2: ASAP Ferg, you can get his latest album, Always Strive and Prosper. It was released last year. His new mixtape, Still Striving, drops in August. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, Jonathan Katz. You know Jonathan, you know him from his animated TV series, Dr. Katz, Professional Therapist. It aired on Comedy Central in the late 1990s, and it was one of the strangest animated shows on television at the time. It was mostly Dr. Katz played by Jonathan, a big city shrink with a rotating clientele of comedians and actors who basically just sat on his couch and squiggled, and did material from their acts. Katz was supported by his son Ben, played by H. John Benjamin, and Laura, his secretary, played by Laura Silverman. It was a hilarious show, kind of a brilliant conceit. Every comedian who'd sit in with Katz would give him what was essentially an intimate one-on-one version of their act. We've all heard the cliche that stand-up is therapy for comics. Well, Dr. Katz took that idea as literally as it possibly could. Here's Mitch Hedberg on the show, back in the 90s.
3: Is there any? Is there a history of mental illness in your family? No,
0: just a history of uh, drinking and getting mad at people for drinking. Alcoholism is a disease, but it's the only disease that you can get yelled at for having. <clears throat> Damn it, Otto, you're an alcoholic. Damn it, Otto, you have lupus. One of those two doesn't sound right. Yeah, t- tell me about your parents,
3: Mitch, if you can.
0: My dad used to be into coin collecting, which was cool because I was into video games. And then he got into stamp collecting, and I got into mailing things. Mm -hmm. I had a bag of Fritos once. They were Texas grill Fritos. These Fritos had grill marks on them. Hell yeah. Reminds me of summer, when we used to fire up the barbecue and throw down on some Fritos. I can still see my dad with the apron
2: on. You better flip that, Frito, Dad. You know how I like it. Dr. Katz went off the air in 1999. And since then, Katz has kept writing, doing stand-up, and working behind the scenes, too. He was also diagnosed with multiple sclerosis about 20 years ago. And although he didn't at first, he now speaks very frankly about his disease. Now Dr. Katz is back. Jonathan just released a brand-new series on Audible called Dr. Katz, The Audiophiles, Files." Laura Silverman and John Benjamin are back. It's got a whole new lineup of comedians and actors on the couch, including old favorites like Sarah Silverman, Ray Romano, and Andy Kindler. Jonathan Katz, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you for asking. I did not know until today, and I've spoken to you a number of times, that you were a champion ping pong player.
3: New York State champion, 1964. I wish I could say that with more
2: humility. <laughs> <laughs> you are a, you are a, like an inveterate recorder of things, right? Like at home? Uh,
3: yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been recording things since I was about seven years old, and my dad came home with a reel-to-reel machine.
2: What kind of things did you record when you were a kid? Well, it would range from uh,
3: things in Mad Magazine... My cousin Paul and I would read Mad Magazine and we'd make up our own sketches. And we had a band called The
2: Cousins. You thought you were going to be a musician initially, right? I did,
3: and I still do. I still think I'm going to write a hit song before this conversation is over.
2: I have a song that you wrote here. It's called This Heart Is Closed for Alterations. Can you tell me where this song came from?
3: Well, it's a song I wrote with David Mamet. And um, it came from, well, you know, I was a a very dramatic young man. I, w- I was rejected by women in so many songs, it's depressing. <laughs> Not in real life, but just in my music, I was rejected.
2: Exclusively? Yeah. Well, let's take a listen to, this is actually from Mork and Mindy. So it's Robin Williams, with, with whom you worked for a while. Right. As uh, Mork from Mork and Mindy. Um, rainbow suspenders and all in a country band singing a song that my guest Jonathan Katz wrote with his friend legendary playwright David Mamet this heart is closed for alterations
0: and the management extends apologies
3: I'm
0: sorry if I've been convenience you? I'll make it right before I'm through But
3: for a little while just bear
2: with me This heart is closed
0: for alterations So please excuse the rubble and debris You see I've reached a few decisions and I made a few revisions. I think we'll make a new man out of me. Gizbum what's
2: I don't know if you wrote the part where he uh, talks in an alien voice.
3: No. No. It was all him. But, you know, working with him for... Touring with him for a, almost a year was... Really exciting. And he he was red hot because of Mork and Mindy. And um, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've been saying it for so long. I think I sold, because there were so many women who wanted to meet him after the show, I sold a vial of his urine for $500. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound true, does it? It couldn't be true.
2: <laughs> well, what were you doing on the tour?
3: Well, Robin's first wife was somebody who was, uh, for a short time, was my girlfriend in college. And she introduced Robin to my music. And he did two songs, This Heart is Close for Alterations and another, another song called Born to be Punished.
2: You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Jonathan Katz. He created and starred in Comedy Central's Dr. Katz Professional Therapist. It's back now as an audible series called Dr. Katz, The Audiophiles. I mean, the two of you are an odd comic pairing. I mean, aesthetically, Robin Williams, maybe the most legendarily manic stand-up comic ever, and you essentially the opposite of that.
3: I'm very still. But he's he's something that I'm not. He's a really generous laugher. Sometimes I would make a joke and he would turn it into 20 minutes. This is just socially. He seemed like he had uh, only two speeds socially. was um, manic and then kind of sad and introverted. I don't know. Did you ever get to hang out with him?
2: I never hung out with him. I I did meet him once and... It was under odd circumstances. I was picking up another comic from his house. And, uh, yeah, I I got a full kind of averted gaze, sad and lonely interaction with him. Okay. Why do you think you are not a generous laugher? Because there's this myth, there's this idea that comedians never laugh at jokes. And in my experience, it's a real mixed bag. A lot of comedians love to laugh at jokes and their own jokes, sure as well. But
3: uh, when I when I used to hang out with, I hung out with Gary Shandling for a while in Los Angeles, and he said to me, Jonathan, every time you laugh, it sounds like you've been shot. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know why why I don't laugh at other people's jokes. I think because part of part of my mind is engaged in in tapping them, or working on my own joke to follow
2: theirs? We have more of my conversation with Jonathan Katz coming up. After a quick break, Jonathan tells me about dealing with multiple sclerosis. Turns out it can be pretty tough to get a wheelchair onto the stage of a comedy club. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from New West Records and the new album from the Deslawn, Hurry Home. The 13-song set continues their studied and inventive take on New Orleans country and R&B, combining elements of early Stax, Sun, and Atlantic Records with the stripped-down sound gleaned from field recordings of Alan Lomax in the Mississippi Records Catalog. Available June 23rd. More information at thedeslon.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Jonathan Katz in just a minute. But before that, have you heard of our show Pop Rocket? It's our sister show here at Maximum Fun. When you listen to Pop Rocket, every week you get a fascinating conversation about pop culture with a funny, diverse, and brilliant panel. It's hosted by the one and only Guy Branham, brilliant stand-up comic, host of True TV's talk show, The Game Show. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week?
1: Hey, Jesse. This week we are getting literary. The Pop Rocket Summer Book Club will take a look at Octavia Butler's The Parable of the Sower.
2: Oh, a classic. Sounds good. Pop Rocket. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. And, hey, while you're at it, grab the parable of the sower. Get in on that. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Jonathan Katz. He's the creator and star of Dr. Katz Professional Therapist. His new series, Dr. Katz The Audiophiles, is available to listen to now on Audible. I want to play a... a beautiful scene from the animated television show of Dr. Katz. This was this was my producer Kevin's all-time favorite Dr. Katz scene. It's you talking with John Benjamin who played your son Ben. Um and there the two of you are in your house eating some rice for dinner.
3: The rice, you have really outdone yourself. The rice is great. Oh, thanks, man. That that you know what that means a lot to me. When Dad, you, the you, rice you is perfect. That. I mean, it's moist. Yeah. It's uh, wow. perfectly cooked. You timed it right. Uh huh. Yeah, so tender, but it's not mushy. You know, right. it yields to the bite, but not without a little struggle. You know, I mean, you gotta still open your mouth and chew it. It's not that it sure. just goes right in. Well, it's not gonna bite itself, Ben. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I know no. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But thanks for the compliment, Ben. That means so much to me when you just uh. Just take the time to, to notice, really. And I'm not a great cook. You know that. But, no, no. But I'll let you in a little trick. Mm-hmm. It's, you're not cooking a bunch of individual grains. You're cooking the rice. It really works if you think of it. You know, I'm going to cook the rice. Your your maternal grandmother told me that before she died.
2: <laughs> I think Dr. Katz may be the single lowest-stakes television program in the history of the medium. Almost exclusively composed (laughs) of either you and John Benjamin or you and Laura Silverman talking about essentially zero. Just nothing of any consequence at all. Well,
3: my my favorite scene is one where Ben and I confessing to each other that we both have dreams about killing each other. (laughs) And... He feels badly about it, and I and I tell him not to feel badly, but just to embrace it, you know. And uh, I asked him if he thought about how he would kill me, and he says, uh, the first time? <laughs> 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 he made me laugh out loud a lot, John Benjamin, because he would come at comedy from a totally di- different direction than me. He didn't tell jokes or write jokes. He just said funny things and and surprising things to me.
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Jonathan Katz. His latest work is an audio show called Dr. Katz, The Audiophiles. It's out now on Audible. I want to play a clip from Ray Romano uh, on the show. Right after I got married, I found out that in the middle of the night,
0: I was now the automatic noise checker router. Every little thing. What was that? No, it's nothing. No, check it out. Check it out. What do you mean, nothing? Uh, that could be a burglar with a gun. So be careful. Go. Watch out. Put your slippers on. Might have to run. Bring me up a yogurt if it's nothing. Either way, I want a yogurt. Either way, don't come back without a yogurt slipper, boy. Oh, so so you're I'm the, the noise, noise checker.
2: There is something magical about somebody who really got that format. And it's about, you know, stand-up is such a performative thing. But one of the things that you're performing is intimacy. And Dr. Katz was about that intimacy. You know, the question is, can somebody come in and talk to you like a person while they're doing the material from their act? And some some people were exceptionally good at that, like Ray Romano.
3: And the, the other thing I have to... Add is that I very often I mean when it worked best I wasn't actually talking I wasn't in the booth with him because I would just bring him down as a therapist it took my role so literally that I made one woman cry and I made one guy feel better
2: <laughs> that's net zero
3: yeah <laughs> but um, what we discovered I think it was Ray who helped us realize this was better for me not to be in the booth with him, but to drop in my lines after the fact. I didn't want to mess with his flow as a comedian. I, what I really wanted was his comedy.
2: I, I want to play another clip from the new audio version of Doctor Katz. Doctor Katz, the audio files, um, and uh, Sarah Silverman is a guest on the first episode. At least, at least it's the first episode that I heard, and um, she is kind of avoiding talking about her own. Personal issues, uh, and you call her out on that, um, Jonathan. And uh, she ends up she ends up somehow talking about Coco the gorilla, the gorilla that uses oh, sign right. language.
3: No, I just sense your reluctance to talk about anything of a personal nature, which is so defeats the whole purpose of therapy. No, I have so many personal things I want to work out with you. One, why don't they teach that ape, Coco? How come she's never around other gorillas and why don't they teach them uh, sign language? And then we can communicate between all the gorillas and the people. That's uh, been weighing on me. Why isn't Coco now teaching the rest of the apes
0: sign language? Every generation of apes from when they're a baby. And then we can
3: all speak sign language with each other. I think that would be wonderful, Sarah, but... Not only that, but why aren't they doing it? It's like, why doesn't Trump release his taxes? Like... Why do they not want to have commu- mass communication between the apes and the humans?
2: <clears throat> I, I be, I'll be frank. I love all Coco the Gorilla-related humor. Yeah, me but too. particularly. She's cunning, Sarah Silverman,
3: really cunning as a, as a comedian.
2: When did you first have um, symptoms of multiple sclerosis?
3: Uh, I had the classic presentation called the Lhermitte, named after Dr. Lhermitte, a French doctor, which is you put your chin to your chest and you start speaking French. Now, you, you feel like it's almost like an electric sensation in your spine. That was my first presentation. And then there was numbness in my hands, numbness on my lip, of all places. It's a really sci-fi disease, MS., One of the things they've discovered in recent years is that the closer you live to the equator, the less likely you are to develop MS. And simply by raising the equator as little as 500 miles, we could reduce the incidence of MS by 32%.
2: (laughs) Did you think when you were diagnosed that you had better keep it quiet because it could affect your life and career?
3: Oh, absolutely. In fact, my, my manager at the time and my lawyer at the time said to me, in Ella, you're not allowed to be sick or old. So I moved back to Boston where both things are encouraged. <laughs> no, it, it is very... A lot of people don't disclose their condition because they're afraid of being fired. And oddly enough... You can't really be accommodated without disclosing your condition, so it's sort of a trap.
2: When did you decide to talk about it?
3: Well, first of all, for a few years I was getting paid to talk about it. I was getting paid by a pharmaceutical company, and that is kind of embarrassing because I'm not a big fan of those guys. But uh, the difference between doing that and doing stand-up is that you're performing in a hotel in the daytime, which is bad. Comedy is not meant to be heard in the daytime.
2: It seems to me like part of the challenge of living with MS for a comic particularly is that a comic has a uniquely, you know, a comic is a traveling entertainer. That's how you make your living. I would imagine that part of the challenge is that you can't control your environment in the same way that you might be able to if you worked in an office and lived in your house full time because you're just not in an office or a house you're in a club and you never know what it's going to be like or you're in a theater and you never know what it's going to be like or you're in a hotel and you don't know what it's going to be like
3: well you know you know what's tricky when I ask people who run the theater if it's accessible they'll say sure um, but they're thinking about the audience they're not thinking about the performer so I have to worry about getting on stage, getting off stage. That's a whole different thing.
2: Do you find that the audience reacts to you differently? No.
3: I think that surpri- if they haven't seen me, for, if they've never seen me, it's not a problem. But if they haven't seen me for years, they're often surprised by uh, how my physical condition has changed. When I was first diagnosed, m- my wife and I went to see a neurologist in Boston. And I was 49 years old, and I said to the guy, what do guys my age do when they're diagnosed with MS? And he said, some guys have 10 affairs and some guys climb Mount Everest. So we talked it over, my wife and I.
2: (laughs) I imagine that one of the nice things about the uh, all-MS version of your act that you were performing for uh, on behalf of a pharmaceutical company is that Right. You don't have to follow Dom Irera. You can follow uh, a guy who knows a lot about nerve structures.
3: I followed two neurologists. It was heaven. <laughs> One would have been fine, but two neurologists. This audience was so. It was so ready for me.
2: Are there jokes about MS that you could do in an audience full of whatever uh, neurology professionals? that you could never do in your act, but that you're particularly proud of?
3: Well, I guess I asked my uh, neurologist. Oh, my neurologist told me you have to cut down on three things. No more salt. No more alcohol. And I said, what about sex? He said, I'm seeing someone. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's just a joke. It's only a joke.
2: Does your wife ever get tired of your jokes?
3: Oh, yes. Yes, (laughs) she's getting tired right now. I can see her. In fact, she finds my voice so soothing, she's never been able to stay awake for an episode of Dr.
2: Katz. (laughs) Did you feel like you should be more of that pushed-up sport coat sleeves comedian or more of the, I'll tell you some fundamental truths about me and my life comedian when you were a relatively new comic in the 80s? Do I only get two choices? Well, I, mean, I mean, those, only, those, only were, those of were 80% of what was going in the comedy boom in the 1980s. And I'm just picturing you walking up on stage and talking very slowly.
3: Well, you know, I... I... I had a guitar I was leaning on, uh, and I didn't play it. I had was all pre-recorded stuff in my guitar, <laughs> so that that was like a, I used that as a crutch. I would say things like, uh, "I've been called the White Paul Simon." That was my first joke, I think. And then I would, oh, I talked about my the birth of my daughter for about six years. I said how wonderful it is to be there to witness the birth of your own child. To see the stork penetrate the uterus. (laughs) Unbelievable. It's a stupid joke. It's pretty stupid.
2: (laughs) Well, Jonathan, we're out of time, but I'm very, very happy to have had you back on the show. It's always great to get to talk to you.
3: Well, when you say we're out of time, do you mean both of us?
2: Yeah, the Grim Reaper's coming for all of us, buddy.
3: Oh, because I can go on for another eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Jonathan Katz, you can find his new series on Audible now. It's called Dr. Katz, The Audio Files. If you haven't seen it, go watch Dr. Katz, Professional Therapist. There's a bunch of episodes on YouTube. You can buy it on DVD. Amazon even has a couple of seasons on VHS, if that's your pleasure. My mother-in-law's got some. She'll probably sell them to you. We bought them for her because she's a therapist, but she's not really into it. Every week on Bullseye, we like to wrap things up with a pop culture recommendation from me, your host... It's called the Outshot. So, what made Prince Prince? It's something I've thought about a lot since he passed. Prince had a lot of good qualities great songwriter, great guitarist, great singer, great dancer, charming, beguiling, pretty funny. But the more I think about it, the more I think the princiest thing about Prince is his ridiculous, messy, shameless ambition. Maybe that's why my favorite Prince album is his most messily, shamelessly ambitious. Sign of the Times.
0: And Francis, skinny man, died of a big disease with a little name. By chance, his girlfriend came across a needle and soon she did the same. At home, there were 17-year-old boys and there I did fun. It's being in a gang called the Disciples High on Crack To toting a machine gun.
2: It started as side projects. At the time, 1986 or so, Prince was basically overflowing with music, like grabbing at buckets to catch what poured out of him every night in the studio. He was working on some miscellaneous stuff. He was making an album with sped-up vocals as a sort of lady alter ego, Camille. He was making a record with his band, The Revolution. And then he fired The Revolution. And he canned the Sped Up Vocals album and he put together a triple record of the stuff that he had around. It was going to be called Crystal Ball. Warner Brothers told him you can't sell triple albums, so he whittled it down to a double. And that came out 30 years ago at Sign of the Times. You could say there's something for everyone on the two discs, but here's the truth. Everything on those albums is for everyone. Every song is unlike the one before. Every song is great, and every song sounds exactly like Prince. The album has a couple of Prince's greatest love songs, like
0: Adore.
2: And if you were worried that Prince was soft, maybe because you'd spent 1986 listening to Run DMC, Sign of the Times has some jams, like Housequake.
0: Shut up already! Damn. Tell me who in this house know about the quake. I mean really. Really? If you know how to rock, say yeah. Yeah. If you know how to party, say oh yeah. Oh yeah.
2: But the very best songs on the record are its strangest, most personal ones. Prince said that Starfish and Coffee was about a girl he went to school with. It's sweet, playful, and distinctly odd. It's also one of those perfect pop songs he seemed to be able to toss out like short-order hash browns. My favorite song on the record, one of my favorite songs ever recorded, is one of the Camille tracks with the sped-up vocals. It's called If I Was Your Girlfriend. Prince was a shy man who was given to extraordinary public performances. He valorized deep, committed love and also dirty, passionate sex. If I Was Your Girlfriend mixes all those feelings up. It's both intensely sexual and oddly sororal. He orgasms over the idea of going to a movie together and crying.
0: When I was your man
2: The literal interpretation is that it's about Wendy and Lisa, the couple he'd fought with and then fired from his band. But the feelings are trickier than just jealousy. The song basically makes love and sex the same thing, a sort of radical, intense intimacy. It's a hopeful, lonely song, a hungry, distant song. It's a mess of feelings. And as corny as Prince's lyrics could be sometime, I'm a Prince fan who's willing to admit that, it's tough to top. Would you run to me if somebody hurt you, even if that somebody was me? And besides all that, it is just an incredible come on.
3: It's me.
2: There are 16 tracks on Sign of the Times, 16 different pieces of prints. Gentle, thundering, coy, bold, clear, cryptic, odd, preachy, lonely, contented. He made them by himself in his studio, sending his engineer out of the room when he was ready to lay down his vocals. It's an album that goes every direction at once. Songs start here and end there somewhere else entirely. The only thing that ties all this together is is this one incredible performer, this incredible, fierce, strange genius. Sign of the Times is a mess, a beautiful mess, just like Prince. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. This week in the park, my producer Kevin saw a guy who was so good at skipping stones, he sent a stone literally halfway across the lake. And the lake is like one long block by one long block. Very impressive. Our show produced by speaking into microphones. Thanks to Julian Hertzfeld and the staff at WHYY in Philadelphia for helping to tape our interview with the great Jonathan Katz. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas, who until now had never heard a Prince album in his entire life. That is true. It seems crazy that someone like that would have a job. Anyway, production fellows at MaximumFun.org, who I'm pretty sure have heard Prince albums, are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJ W, a.k.a. And this is real and true Prince's personal DJ in Los Angeles for the last couple years of his life. Kind of an amazing thing that happened almost by accident. Our theme music recorded by the Go team provided to us by Memphis Industries Records, their record label. Thanks to both of them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're on the internet, did you know that we have a YouTube channel? We are sharing everything from this week's episode right there. So you can listen to each segment, share it, comment on it, whatever's clever. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on YouTube to find it. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.